First Thessalonians chapter three. Beginning in verse one, Paul writes, therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. That no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. And, you know, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to you to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before God night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. We've witnessed the birth of a church and we have been given a description of both the model minister and the model church. In the last chapter, we discovered the model church receives and believes the word of God. The model church appreciates the word of God and appropriates the word of God and applies the word of God in their lives. And so Paul encourages the new believers that in spite of pain and in spite of affliction, in spite of suffering, they're to hold fast. They're to stand firm. And these have stood firm. The believers possessed a strong fellowship in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And now Paul commends them for their strong faith in verses 1 through 10. As a matter of fact, Paul is going to press this issue of faith five times in 10 verses. Number one, Paul desires to strengthen or reinforce their faith in verse 2. Number two, Paul wants to know that their faith has remained whole. It has remained intact in spite of the onslaught of the trial, the test, the temptation in verse 5. Number three, Paul and Silas received word from Timothy that the faith of the Thessalonian believers and their affections were still strong. That's what we see in verse 6. And number four, the apostles received comfort themselves over the faith of the Thessalonian believers. That in verse 7. And number five, Paul's desire is to perfect or to make whole or to make complete the believer's newfound faith. And so this particular passage begins with a concern for the faith of the flock 
he says in verse one, therefore, that means in light of everything that I've said in chapter one and in chapter two, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left alone in Athens or in Athens alone. Now, the word when it says, therefore, when we could no longer endure it, the word endure is very interesting. It's the Greek word stego, the verb. It comes from the noun stege, which comes from the ancient, ancient world of Greece, which meant a roof or a ceiling. A roof obviously is something that protects or conceals. In the ancient world, the word came to mean to cover something, to cover it either with silence or to keep secret or to hide or to conceal. As a matter of fact, you can imagine when you are most uncomfortable in your home, imagine if the roof could be torn away and everyone could look inside and see what you're doing. The roof keeps your life relatively secret, if you will. So here the idea is almost like when we came to the place. Have you ever used the expression? I've had it up to here. That's sort of what Paul is saying. It's it's when he could stand it no longer. He had to do something about it. And he says, therefore, when we could no longer stand it or endure it, when we came right up to our limit, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. They have left from Thessalonica. They have gone to Athens. They're getting ready to send Timothy back to them. And so when he says that we would be left alone, Paul would rather himself be left alone than to allow the Thessalonian believers to be left alone. Now we see this paternal instinct, this maternal instinct, this pastoral instinct inside of Paul as he cares deeply about what's going on in the believer's life. Now, you can imagine that on the mission field, strong Christian companionship is hard to come by. And so both Paul and Silas are going to make a very big sacrifice. They're going to send Timothy Back to Thessalonica, Paul is willing to forego personal comfort and personal companionship so that the new believers can receive comfort and companionship. And it's hard to understand just looking at the verse superficially when it says we thought it good to be left alone. The word left alone is a very strong word in the original language. As a matter of fact, there's probably a better word that I would use, I think it's the word bereaved. Do you know what the word bereaved means? It's a word that we use to describe a person who has been left alone by virtue of the fact that someone that they love has died. You know, it's one thing to know that you're left alone. And that the person is going to come back to you. But it's another thing to be left alone and you have no guarantee that the person is ever going to come back. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about a massive hole that's left inside of your heart when you make a difficult decision. That's what he's talking about. 
And then it says, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Not everyone has the ability to minister. Not everyone has the ability to work. But Paul is sending a person who he has trained and personally discipled. Now, Paul has a few things in mind in sending Timothy to the the new church. First, Paul says to establish you. Sterizo. It means to make stable. It means to place firmly. It means to set fast. It means to strengthen. But it has the net effect in this particular passage to mean to stand firm. Remember what we talked about earlier when we prayed. Uh, I talked about families. And, and if you are a mother or a father, when you give birth to a child, a child typically doesn't stand immediately out of the womb. You have to hold the baby. You have to cradle the baby. The baby grows. And as the baby grows and as the baby matures, remember what mom and dad do. They hold the little baby by their hands and the baby is trying to stay. You know, we all think that Isaac Newton discovered gravity. Every child ever born discovered gravity. You've seen it. You let go of their little hands and they go, They're like a surfer out on the waves and and Earth's gravity begins to pull them to the earth. And the same is true when you become a Christian. When you become a Christian, there are invisible forces at work that are pulling you back to the life that you used to lead. Paul desires through Timothy to teach the new believers Those realities that comprise their great faith. That's why he says to encourage you and and to establish you. The great faith is objective in so much as that it has as its object the person of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus, the ministry and miracles of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, his ascension into heaven, his his being seated at the right hand of the Father, the reality that Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead, the powerful promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit's availability to the new believer as a source of love and power. The new believers need to know this information so that they can be a Firmly established in the truth. This is why we have a foundations class in part here. It's not good enough for you to simply believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. We want you to grow and we want you to mature. We want you to grow and mature in the things of God and and in the circumstances so that you're going to be able to face life's problems and life's pressures and life's pain. And second, Paul hoped Timothy would encourage or exhort them to steadiness so that no one would be moved by the afflictions. By the way, the word encourage is that very familiar word, parakaleo. It's been used over and over in First Thessalonians. Remember, that's the word that meant 
to call alongside, to render help. We, we talked about it being a word that sort of describes the triple A of spirituality. When you're out in the wilderness and you're far away and you're broken down and you need to call so that someone can come and bail you out. It meant to render assistance or comfort or aid. And the believers had a new source of hope and help and strength. So they had no need to fear. The Lord was ready and willing and able to be their ever-present help in time of need. And so Paul and Silas are willing to divide their company, send Timothy back in order to establish them like in a foundations class so that they'll be able to weather the storm. Now, can you imagine the young Timothy returning to Thessalonica to strengthen and encourage the people, the men and the women? And remember, they've already many of them lost their jobs because of their newfound faith. Husbands and wives have have walked out on them because of their newfound faith. They've lost their reputation because of their newfound faith. The worship services have to be held in secret because of the brutality and persecution of city officials and former religious leaders. They're living under constant threat and constant pressure and constant disappointment. So what do you suppose Timothy would say to them? What would you say to them? Because guess what? You're left with that opportunity almost each and every day. Somebody calls you and they say, my husband is gone and my wife is gone. They they call you and they say, my child is sick. They call you and they say the circumstances of their life. They've lost their job or or they're getting ready to have their house foreclosed. Seasoned saints serve. But you know what you can't do? You can't lead a person to a place that you yourself have never been to. And so the seasoned saint grows and learns, learns to trust the Lord in spite of pain, in spite of persecution, in spite of affliction. And in verse three, it says that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. You have to understand something that just like Christians in every single generation, there were pain and there were problems. And it caused many of the new believers to ask this question. Well, if God is such a good God and if God is is such a loving God and if, if God is such a great God, then how do you explain the fact that my husband has lost his job, that my wife has lost her job, that my family has walked out on me? How do you explain the pain and the persecution? How do you explain The death and the disease. How do you explain all of these awful things that are happening to us? And so. As a matter of fact. He's so concerned that the believers would be shaken or drawn aside or thrown off course. And that's the idea that no one should be shaken. The word is translated in the NIV version unsettled, but it really means also to draw aside or to throw off course or to push off balance. So how do you know you have a strong faith? One of the ways that you know that you have a strong faith 
is if your faith changes because of trial, because of affliction, because of suffering. You know, it's one thing to go along life when everything is going good and everything is going right. But what do you do when your child is diagnosed with lymphoma or with leukemia or cancer? What do you do when you have to make several journeys to the hospital over and over again? What do you do when you see the circumstances of your life begin to unfold right before your very eyes? We live in a Christian culture that is shaken by these afflictions. Some seem to have never gotten the memo that God's plan sometimes includes suffering and that suffering isn't always avoidable. Affliction may seem like accidents, but they become God's appointments for change. That's why Paul writes, for you yourselves know that you were appointed to this. You might have thought it was an accident. But it's God's appointment. I told you about this time last year. I had an accident. I was coming to uh, the church and I was driving down Ken Carl and I turned on to Garrison in order to go into our parking lot. And there was a lady parked on the street, minding her own business not doing harm to anyone. And I hit the sheet of ice. And have you ever seen that inevitability? Have you ever been in that hopeless and helpless situation where you hit the brakes, you move the steering wheel, nothing happens. All you can do is just simply to continue the journey on the little bobsled that has become your car. And then I tapped into her. And we go into... The gas station and exchange licenses and, and phone numbers and insurances. But little did I know that God's that what seemed like an accident was, in fact, God's appointment. In the course of that year, her son, Jackson, was diagnosed with cancer. She sent me an email earlier this month saying he's back in the hospital and things are not going good at all. And then she called me on Tuesday night and said, could you please come over and pray with my family and with Jackson? And on Wednesday afternoon, Jackson had died. This Monday, we're having his funeral. What do you say to her? What do you say to her family? How do you minister? How do you provide support and encouragement What did Paul tell them when he was with them? What did Paul say to the people of Thessalonica when he began to describe what happened to Jesus and what happened to the apostles and what happened to him when he embraced the Lord Jesus Christ? Did he talk about the pain and the persecution and the circumstances we know that he did, as a matter of fact, later on, when he was would write to the Philippians, he would say, for to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Paul's single sentence refutes the wrong thinking that all suffering is a result of personal sin. 
even though we would like to have an explanation of why painful things and problematic things happen, we don't always have that explanation. Philip Yancey in his book, Where is God When It's Hurt, writes, quote, I've never read a poem extolling the virtues of pain. I've never seen a statue erected in its honor. Nor have I heard a hymn that's dedicated to it. Pain is usually defined as unpleasantness. Christians don't really know how to interpret pain. If you pen them against a wall in a dark and a secret moment, many Christians would probably admit that pain was God's one mistake. He really should have worked a little harder and invented a better way of coping with the world's dangers, unquote. But every doctor and every nurse knows that it isn't a mistake that you have a central nervous system. You would miss it if it were gone. That's the one thing that bothered me about President Ronald Reagan. Remember when he got shot? He's waving. A, 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 an assassin from Colorado shoots. The bullet enters under his left armpit and he continues to wave. He doesn't know he's been shot. I want a president who, when he's been shot, he knows he's been shot. If you didn't have a, nerve, a central nervous system, you would miss it. As a matter of fact, it becomes the very metaphor in the Bible for sin. That's what leprosy is. Leprosy is the inability to know that you're hurt. Pain isn't a mistake. It's there to lead us and guide us and direct us so that we know when we have problems. And in verse four, it says, for in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. And, you know. But some of you skipped these verses. We sometimes wrongly think that pain and suffering and affliction and tribulation is always caused by some disability or inability or personal failure or, or personal sin or, or a personal lack of faith. But trials can be a part of God's perfect plan for believers. We may not like it, but trial and tribulation Build character. That's what it says in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It promotes patience. That's what it says in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. It awakens sensitivity and compassion towards people who are in difficult circumstances. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Problems are unavoidable for God's people. Your trial, your trouble, your tribulation might be one of the most powerful proofs that you're squarely in the middle of God's will. That you are exactly where you belong. If you don't understand the place of trial and affliction... You'll easily become discouraged and defeated in your Christian life. And trial and pain and failure it may have already discouraged some of you. Wow, I had no idea that it was going to be this hard being a Christian. 
I had no idea that when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, all hell would break loose. Hey, there's a reason why all hell broke loose. You were no threat before. But the moment that you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the moment that you determine that you're going to walk away from sin and that you're going to walk in obedience and submission to the Savior, all of the stops come out. Chuck Swindoll in a great little uh, pamphlet wrote, quote, whenever we pass through a time of real struggle and pain, we usually find ourselves experiencing tension between acceptance and resistance. On one side of the coin, we place our hands in God's sovereign and loving care, realizing that he never makes mistakes. We know that there's a good purpose for everything that he allows to pierce our lives. On the flip side, however, we tend to fight against the intrusion of suffering, vowing never to give up the hope that we can endure, even overcome the parasite that's draining our life from us. Usually we find ourselves responding to both sides. We plead for God to exercise mercy and healing while trying to rest in his loving control. And through it all, we often ask, does any of this have to happen at all? Can't suffering and the resultant tension be avoided altogether? Scripture plainly says no. The biblical response is that suffering is both inevitable and essential. Unquote. There's a plan and there's a purpose. Your plan and and purpose may be to live comfortably. So what happens when God says, I'm going to send a little discomfort in your life. I'm going to intrude into that area of pleasant living. So that you'll trust me. And so that you'll draw close to me. For the Thessalonian believers, the affliction and the persecution began with shameful attacks. It it continued with confrontation and opposition. And then it continued with shameful treatment. And then it continued with direct threats that if they continued to preach Jesus, if they continued to talk about Jesus, that they were going to have to accept the consequences. We know that that some of them experienced physical abuse by the mobs in Acts chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. We know that the civil authorities, the city leaders were enlisted in the persecution. And the only thing that was really left for these new believers in that new town as the persecution and the pain and the suffering mounted was to face what looked like the inevitable circumstance that at some point the people would become so angry with them that they would kill them. Despite the shameful treatment, despite the bitter and savage attacks, these believers refused to be moved away from their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That becomes part of the lesson for each and every one of us and part of the reason why I believe that God preserved this note for all of us. It's so that we would know that pain and suffering, persecution and and affliction 
are the inevitable results of close companionship with Christ. So why does the world hate the believer? You know why. We've talked about this. Remember in John's Gospel? Because you're not of this world. You're called out of the world. Your belief and your behavior is to be different from the world. You are fine. Just so long as you believe and behave exactly the way that they do. But the moment that you say, this is wrong. And that's right. The moment you say, no, there's a real problem with sin. The moment you say the real solution to the problem of sin is a right relationship with God in Christ. You're going to have opposition. It might be mild at first, but it will continue. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Those are Jesus's words in John 15, 19. The believers are persecuted because they strip away the veneer of sin, the cloak of sin and wear the robes of righteousness. In John 15, 18 and 22, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If I had not come and spoken to them the words of righteousness, they wouldn't have sinned, but they have no cloak for their sin. In other words, the moment that Jesus models righteousness, Righteousness, there's no place to hide. The moment Jesus does what's right instead of what's wrong, we have a model for what is right instead of what's wrong. No wonder at the end of his own life, Paul will write in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The world doesn't know God. The world doesn't love God. This world system doesn't want the God of the Bible. This world system wants a God who will provide entertainment and comfort and ease and pain free and problem free living. People want a God that will allow them to pursue their pleasure and their dream. And indulge their sins. But Jesus came. So that you could experience forgiveness of sins. So that you could have a right relationship with God. We live in a world. Think about this. Think about Think about how crazy this world is. We live in a world where they ban prayer in school. But promote porn at the library for children. How did that happen? How did we come to this place? How did we come to be so deeply disturbed that we would actually reject what is good and embrace what is evil? We're under constant pressure by Satan to cave into the test, to cave into the temptation, to forsake God, forsake Christ, forsake faith. Forsake the gospel. And that's why you can hear the voice whispering in your ear. It's not worth it. It's not worth the pain. It's not worth the problem. It's not worth the affliction. 
And that's why Paul writes in verse five, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Paul is in effect saying, did Satan rip you off? There is a Satan. He really does test and tempt a real, invisible, wicked Being threatens, intimidates, hinders, sets traps and obstacles for the believer and the church. Satan wants to ruin your life. Destroy your faith. Blow up your hope. And destroy what little affection you may have for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Satan's tools are blasphemy and ridicule. The unbelieving atheist Sam Harris wrote in his latest book, tell a devout Christian that his wife is cheating on him or that frozen yogurt can make a man invisible and he's likely to require evidence as anyone else would and be persuaded only to the extent that you give it. Tell him that the book he keeps by his bed was written by an invisible deity who will punish him with fire for eternity if he fails to accept its every incredible claim about the universe and he seems to require no evidence evidence whatsoever, unquote. Harris insists that, quote, it is difficult to imagine a set of beliefs more suggestive of mental illness than religious claims, and that while religious people are not generally mad, their core beliefs absolutely are, unquote. Here's what he's saying. You're nuts. All of you, you're nuts. You are crazy. And if you say to him something so bold and so reckless as, you're right, um, I think evidence is forthcoming. Let's talk about this for just a minute. What happens when a person dies? Well, they, they stay dead. Well, how do you explain Jesus? How do you explain his death and his resurrection? If you present the evidences for the resurrection, the Sam Harris's of the world say, "Okay, then if he's resurrected and he's alive, then why doesn't he appear to me right now, right at this moment? In other words, the evidence that they want is is an evidence that they can quantify and scrutinize and that they can post on NBC Nightly News. Harry, back from the dead, Jesus Christ, he's going to be on Larry King tonight. I know if, if that was an announcement, all you could go. Everyone's going to tune into Larry King. Hey, did you hear the news? Jesus back from the dead. He's going to be on Larry King tonight. The Bible says that apart from faith, it's impossible to please him. The atheist says there is no empirical proof for the existence of God. The atheist says that when when people come back from the dead, hey, then there should be some way to prove it. When Christians affirm that Jesus died and rose from the dead, the hardened skeptic says, not enough evidence for me. And in the end, Satan is a defeated foe. When Jesus died on the cross, God made certain the mechanism for salvation and forgiveness and redemption was permanently in place and that Satan's kingdom wasn't just harmed, it was permanently broken. All he can do is threaten and intimidate 
But when Jesus returns, Satan will be bound. And when the eternal state begins, he will be cast into a lake of fire. If that were your future, you would probably be a little bit disturbed as well. Are you facing doubt, unbelief, pain, suffering, affliction? Has it caused you to question the love of God, the existence of God, the goodness of God? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is no temptation, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful that he won't let you be tempted beyond that which you can bear. But when you are tested or tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And in verse 6, Paul writes, but now that Timothy has come to us from you. So now think about it. Timothy's gone. He's left Athens. He's gone back to Thessalonica. He's been there. He has now returned to Paul as Paul and Silas have made their way to Corinth and brought us good news of your faith and love that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Timothy had left Thessalonica. He rejoined them in Corinth. Timothy brings the good news concerning their faith and love. They are standing strong. They are unmoved by the pain, the problem, and the persecution. Can you imagine his heart? Can you imagine Paul's heart? It leaps for joy. Can you imagine for the person who says, you know what? We've had maybe the worst year ever. We've had the most difficult time ever. We've experienced the most pain and problems ever. For many of you, as I look out over this congregation, I know some of you have lost your jobs. And some of you have lost things that are valuable to you. Some of you have lost things that you can never get back. And then when I ask you how you're doing and you go, I love the Lord. I'm serving the Lord. I've never been closer to Jesus. I've never loved him more. I've never needed him more. I've never wanted him more. I've never wanted to be used by God more than right now. (laughs) The believers were standing strong. They were unmoved in their faith. What a relief. The ministry outreach wasn't a waste of time. The work was solid and sure. Their faith was intact. Paul adds, and that you always have good remembrance of us. The Thessalonian believers were suffering pain and persecution, affliction and opposition. But the believers refused to falter in their love and in their faith. And look what else they didn't do. They didn't blame Paul for their problems. That preacher, I wish to God we'd never listen to him. We go to church, we hear the Bible study, we pray to receive Jesus Christ, and all hell breaks loose. If I would have known that, I wouldn't have gone to church. If I would have known that, I wouldn't have believed God. If I would have known that, if I would have known all of this stuff is going to happen, I wouldn't have done it. Really? Really? They don't blame Paul for their pain or their suffering. They not only don't blame the apostles for their suffering, they continue the close ties of friendship and fellowship and relationship. They 
discover something that just as much as Paul and Silas want to be with them, they want them to return. They have this strong, firm, steadfast commitment to the truth that has been delivered by the apostles. It makes all the difference in the world to me that you're praying and that you're persevering. And look what it says in verse 7. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith, the strong faith, the dedicated faith, the unwavering faith of these Thessalonian believers was used by God to strengthen and stir Paul's heart and Paul's ministry. You know why this is important for me as a pastor? Because Paul had unprecedented success in Thessalonica. And he was had unprecedented failure in Athens. And then when he went to Corinth, he's dealing with a bunch of people out of the Playboy Bunny Mansion. I mean, he, here are people whose lives have been torn literally to shreds because of immorality and paganism and idolatry. And Corinth was a very, very hard place to get the ministry going. And for Paul... For Paul to know that his life mattered and his ministry mattered and that the gospel mattered. One of the things that I think you should take away from this is that God uses our testimony and faith to strengthen and encourage each other in times of need. I've lost my husband. I've lost my wife. My child is sick. My child has died. My husband is underemployed or my husband is unemployed. We're only one payment away from losing our house. But we continue to pray and we continue to trust God. We continue to serve him. We we continue to trust him. We continue to believe that we will have everything that we need. And we won't have anything that God doesn't want us to have. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Luke said, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And many of you have lived lives of abundant generosity and you've given and given and given over the course of your life. And you find yourself in that awkward position of not giving, but rather than receiving. But know that it's only for a season. There are two times in your life. Times that you give and times that you receive. And look at verse 8. For now... We live if you stand fast in the Lord. Here's Paul's declaration. The strong faith of the Thessalonians renewed his heart, renewed his life, renewed his purpose, renewed his ministry. It brought new vitality into his heart. 
Paul was discouraged, but not defeated. And the difficulties and the problems and the persecution were real. And because he had a new batch of problems in Corinth with the immorality and the wickedness in that corrupt place. But when he receives the news from the Thessalonian believers, it ignites and renews this burst of life and love and ministry and purposes. And it creates something inside of Paul's heart that you might miss. He says, because we've heard from you, guess what? I've never wanted to work harder than I want to work now. I've never wanted to pray harder than I'm praying now. I've never wanted to minister more than I'm ministering now. That's what he's saying. And then in verse 9, it says, for what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before God? Here's the idea. Do you want to know how to bring joy to the pastor's heart? Have a strong faith in the middle of the trial and the suffering and the pain and the persecution. And as you have that strong heart and that strong faith, you go, Pastor. My family and I are committed to honoring Christ. No matter what. In verse 10, Paul says, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Here's the idea. Paul prays night and day. He, he prays because he knows that it's the outlet of power. The Holy Spirit is God's power. Paul prays to see their faith and perfect their faith. Here's the idea. Have you ever made a long journey across the country? I grew up in a time when my dad used to take long drives and um, we used to have to make the, the trek often from Louisiana to California. And I remember the very first time I had to make the drive all by myself in my own car. I had a 1973 cinnamon red Maverick. And so my dad comes out and he goes, that piece of junk is never going to make it to California. I go, what do you mean, dad? The tires, the ball, the belts, they're getting ready to break. You don't have any water in the radiator. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to get to Texas and you're going to call me and say, Dad, I've broken down in the middle of nowhere. So my dad changes the tires and replaces the belt and changes the oil and the radiator fluid. In the hopes that he's going to get me from point A to point B. That's Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer is, I want to see you. So that I can prepare you for the journey. Because each and every one of you, make no mistake, you're headed in a particular direction. And I guarantee that each and every one of you will get there. But how you get there, you're going to either get there full of joy and grace and mercy or full of doubt and discouragement and despair. And so Paul prays. He prays to see them face to face. He desires to return and see them once more. He prays for the privilege of providing for their ministry future that we may supply everything that is lacking. That's what that word means. Perfect. Caterizzo. It means to render arterios. Make fit. Make sound. Make complete. It was the word that was used to describe the outfitting of an army so they could march forward. That's what he's talking about. Because we're going to have a whole lot or we're going to have a whole little. 
Philip Yancey rightly observed that pain is the gift that nobody wants. It's the gift everybody has to open in order to grow. We're coming up on the holidays, aren't we? And you might be receiving an unwelcome package. An uninvited gift. It may have already came. And Satan may have asked you to sign for the package. Hey, what's inside of here? What's in there? Life lessons. Never to be forgotten lessons. Lessons that will cause you to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth to trust Jesus. It's okay. It is okay for you to ask the question, can God be trusted? It's okay for you to ask the question, is God really in control? It's okay. I'm here to tell you that God can be trusted. And that he really is in control. And that the scriptures are still true. In Jeremiah 29, 11, where it says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future because Satan is whispering in some of your ears. There's no hope and there's no future for me. And it's not true. It's not true. You know how I know it? Because the journey's not over. And the finish line is still ahead. And God has unfinished business with me. And he has unfinished business with you. So how did Paul help the believer take a stand? Why, he sent a helper. He wrote a note of encouragement and he prayed for them. It could very well be that God is going to send you to a particular place so that you can be a helper. It could very well be that God is going to ask you to write a note of encouragement. And it could very well be that God is calling you to prepare to be someone else's help for the journey. Someone that you least expect is going to show up with their tires bald and with their belts loose and with the radiator empty. And they're going to need help for the journey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you are a good and a gracious God. Lord, we pray that we would have a proper perspective. Lord, we know that there are going to be times when we need help and there are going to be times when we are the helper. There are going to be times when we need a note of encouragement and there are going to be times when we give the note of encouragement. But always and everywhere, Lord, we pray that we would do exactly that. Encourage one another, motivate one another, minister to one another. Encourage one another on the journey, the journey that is eventually going to lead to heaven. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand.